in my experience, people in a time of stress, it's easier to tap into anger and direct that somewhere else. And that's just a bad recipe for everybody. Welcome to Financially Ever After Widowhood, the podcast where we empower women to take control of their financial future after the loss of a spouse. I'm your host, Stacey Francis, President and CEO of Francis Financial, an award-winning and nationally recognized financial advisory firm. With the help of incredible guests, I'm ready to guide you through this challenging transition. Our guest today is Allison Arden Bethunder. She's a partner in charge of the Trust in Estates Department at Getz Fitzpatrick. She has extensive experience working with clients in the Trust in Estate area, guardianship, as well as estate litigation. And her decades of experience come in full flight here today as we talk about end of life planning. If you or a loved one has been diagnosed with a terminal illness, it can be, well, overwhelming, scary, frightening, angering, and a list could really go on. But Allison is able to take the emotion out of this to make sure that you are protected from the legal point of view, understanding the next steps that you need to take to protect you and your loved ones. She also talks about the steps when the timeline is limited, how to make sure that you have the support as a caregiver as well. Allison talks also about navigating the healthcare system from concierge medicine, end-of-life care in a hospital setting at home or hospice, and she even tackles what calling 911 means and some of the unintended consequences that it might create. Without further ado, please help me welcome this very important guest for this extremely important conversation, end-of-life planning to protect you, support you, and the one you love who is ill. Allison, I am so happy to have you here today. We're kind of talking about a heavy topic. What happens when you find out that your partner, your spouse, the love of your life has a terminal illness? And I know that as a trust and estate attorney and just also even in your personal experience, you're familiar with this and having to prepare, make decisions. And so I'm so honored that you're here from just the personal point of view, but then also the professional point of view, because I know you deal with a lot of clients who are struggling with a really difficult diagnosis. Yes. And I'm also privileged to be here as always. I always enjoy speaking with you about it. And this is a heavy topic, end of life decision-making and healthcare decision-making. As I told you before, you know, I think the only way to get through it is with a sense of humor. So I think that there is a certain absurdity to it, especially when you're in the moment and that it helps bring some levity to it, although it's certainly not needing any disrespect for people who are going through a difficult time. I do think that leaning on others and support is imperative. But when you know someone or a client comes to you and says, I've been diagnosed and have roughly this long to live. And of course, it could be a lot longer than that. What steps do you take? I personally would almost be paralyzed 
it's news that you never, ever hope to hear about yourself or about a loved one. From the mechanical point of view of like, what do we need to do to make sure that we're prepared? Mm -hmm. What does that look like? So there's two components that I divided into when I have a client like that, right? Because there's the legal side and there's the part that I can give legal advice and there's documents that we can do. There's a part of it that really is just me as a human being talking to them about how to navigate that from more of a sociology standpoint of like, mm-hmm. what, how do you talk about things? And some people are just really not good at facing the difficult conversations, right? Yeah. Facing that with their family. And to me, really the families who are able to navigate these really difficult, high stress points in time are the ones who have some foundation of good communication, you know, existing bonds. So let me take the legal part first. So in terms of your basic foundation of estate planning documents, the two documents that we're really focusing on in this topic is a healthcare proxy and a living will. So a healthcare proxy appoints somebody as your agent to make medical decisions. And that could be day-to-day decisions. And the idea is that they're making those decisions if you yourself can't communicate them with the doctor or if the doctor says, I can't communicate with Mm -hmm. this person, Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean you're mentally incompetent, although there's a crossover. The living will is really a statement of intent. And so you probably remember the Terry Schiavo case, which was a, a very young woman who was pregnant. And there was a dispute between the husband and the parents who were very, very religious about end of life and taking her off life support. And so what that put a spotlight on, I can't say that the living will came out of that, but it certainly gave more importance because what the living will is it's evidence, right? It's evidence of the person's intention of what they would or would have not wanted in a situation of exigent circumstances. Now, philosophically, and I was never a good philosophy student, but philosophically, the living will says something along the lines of, if I'm suffering from a condition from which I will not recover or return to a quality of life, leaving the quality of life piece aside, we are all suffering from a condition that we are not going to recover. It's life. We're all going to die, right? It's just that Mm -hmm. we don't know when, we don't know how. And so, you know, in your daily life, it's not exactly a thing you want to sit down and talk about when you're 35 years old, newly married with a kid of what do I want to happen? On the spectrum of people who have those conversations, there are people who've never talked about it. And then there's people who have talked about it in ridiculous detail. This is what I Mm -hmm. want. And so really what it does is it informs your agent and informs the decision maker. It gives comfort to the decision maker of knowing what the person would or would not have wanted. Would they want to be kept alive with a breathing apparatus? Would they want to be going around alive and have a colonoscopy bag. And that analysis could be very different if you have young kids and they want to see them graduate no matter what condition they're in, or if they're 85 years old and they've lived their life. I mean, from a legal standpoint, those are the documents. And at a minimum, the living will, to me, is evidence that they've not only signed the document, but we've had the conversation. And if any of my clients come back to me where there is some sort of a dispute in the hospital, or that there's, I mean, it's very rare that this will go to court, but when it does, it's a highly charged emotional situation when already layered on just a bad situation where there's somebody lying in the hospital and literally you're deciding the life or death and what they would have wanted. You know, I am putting myself in that situation of, God forbid, something happened to my husband. I am his healthcare proxy. I'm making the decisions on his behalf that's a heavy weight. That is quite a burden. And having a living will, a document, essentially sharing his wishes, 
I feel like is one of the most wonderful gifts because it's his voice, it's his word saying what he wants and does not want. And when you're in that position, like you said, it's emotionally charged. You just want the person back the way that they were, that they used to be. You know that that's not possible. And making those decisions is just heart-wrenching. Having these pieces in place can make it so much, I hate to use the word easier, but I guess the word I'm trying to use is that they can give you more peace about those decisions. It makes a very stressful situation less stressful. And my my feeling is that in times of high stress, people do not make good decisions. It's why people run security drills and right so that it becomes part of the fabric of like, okay, I can do this. And so the more things that you can give certainty to and eliminate, they like we don't know what's going to happen, but we know it's going to be a triage or an emergency situation. It's going to happen out of nowhere where you least expect it and you have to drop everything. So at least if you have the things in place, it's almost like a touchstone of, okay, this is going to be okay. And the living will with couples, I think also is that when I have spouses that I'm representing, it prompts the conversation, whether it's with me or not, they're going to leave and say, oh, you know, what do we want? And how do we want this to happen? And over time, they might evolve that conversation. And I do find that anecdotally, the people who have gone through it with their parents are the ones who are on the front lines of, I got to get this done. This is not going to happen to me. And so live through it. They live through it. And they've this is a bad way to put it. They've gotten a taste of it, right? And when mm-hmm. you it really does give you perspective on it, and my own personal experiences inform it. I was temporary guardian for a woman who was a stranger to me other than me being her guardian. And I had to make end of life decisions for her on Yom Kippur. Oh my word. She went to the hospital, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. I was literally on the sidewalk with my talus on me and having conversations with the bioethics committee. And they're really hard decisions to make in yeah. terms of substitute decision-making. What would this person do? What would this person want? I can't say it's easier or harder. It's challenging in all circumstances, whether it's a spouse, if it's a sibling, if it's a parent, different yeah. dynamics, but always very challenging. So who are the other people that you should have on your team. So you are leaving from the hospital, you've just gotten this diagnosis, or your partner has, obviously your trust and state attorney, making sure your healthcare proxy and living will is up to date. Your state planning too, that's important. Are there other professionals that you see, Allison, that play a key role during this time? And I think when they say, put your oxygen mask on first so you can help somebody. The caregivers often put the other spouse first. They're sick, right? That's the most vulnerable people and they feel selfish, especially women, not exclusively, but especially women who really forget about the self-care component and getting respite care or getting their own therapy or because, and I've seen it all too often where the abject pain and suffering of it for a loved one can really eat at you to the point where you are pushing other people away because they don't feel your pain. You are alienating all the people who are trying to help you. And then you are left without help because those people can only do so much, right? But when you're in that place of pain and just spinning, you lose a certain sense of what's a reasonable expectation, right? Nobody can fix it. You can't fix it. A lawyer can't fix it. All you can do is offer possible solutions, like you said, to make it easier to navigate it. 
And you're also in a landscape of constant change and unexpected. And we've seen that in society, right? We went through a pandemic. The heightened stress is that nobody knew what to expect as a society. You didn't know what next. So you're basically in that sustained period of constant change. And for a caregiver spouse, it becomes all about the sixth spouse. And it is natural to feel some level of resentment. Like, what about my life? And financially, all my money is going to their care. What happens when I get sick? Just brings up all of these fears and things like that. So I think the number one person is a therapist, 100%. And if they say you should be on medication, I am a firm believer that like whatever softens the law makes easier. People should not be too proud or too strong to say, but I should be able to handle this. They shouldn't. And it's important to get that support. So that's the first thing. I think support groups of the disease you're talking about, if there is an actual diagnosis, can be helpful to a point. I caution with it because I think it can also insulate a person into that environment. And it just becomes kind of an ecosystem that may or may not be helpful. I think it's just something to use in the mix of things, but maybe with a dose of caution because you're yeah. also in an environment now of other people who are in pain. They may not be taking care of themselves either, right? And just this snowball. This is nowhere near the situation that we're talking about. But my dog had surgery last Monday and my husband had surgery on Thursday. Before anyone judges me, yes, I would have loved to split them out, but those were the only days we could get. And I will tell you, Allison, I have been up every morning this morning was 4.50, to make sure all the breakfast was done, everything was ready for the kids for school, all the laundry was done, dinner was on, because I knew that I was going to have back-to-back meetings here at work today. So dinner was in the, the slow cooker and everything I could possibly think to do, and then went out and did my run, which was kind of like my, I'm going to kill someone unless I go out for a run. But I will tell you, even with that run, When I came back and my husband tells me, he said, I've never felt so depleted and sick and awful in my life. He's going to be fine. Yes, it was a major surgery, but Michael's going to be fine. And I said to him, I said, is there anything more that I can do? I'm so trying. And he's like, no, there's nothing else you can do. And Allison, I flashed to wanting to wring his neck. I feel so bad just in the sense of like, yes, there's nothing more I can do. But it was like that feeling of feeling helpless. Like I'm working so hard to make you feel better and you're not feeling better. I'll make you feel better because I just listened to that laundry list of what you did starting at 450. Not only did it exhaust me, I woke up and I had a cup of coffee. (laughs) Yeah, I bowed down to the level of energy you have. But I think you did hit on it, which is also people burn themselves out by doing that because you're obviously ridiculously accomplished, right? And so we live in worlds where we control our environments and we're used to that. This is throwing something where you cannot control it. You know, it's very easy for me to say, and I've been in these situations of terrible trauma, right? You know that eventually it gets less. I said to somebody asked me once when her mother died, does it ever go away? Does it ever get easier? I said, it doesn't ever get easier. It never goes away. It gets less. It's not Mm -hmm. as sharp. It's not as, you know, but to your point about I've been running myself ragged and there's nothing else I could do to change the situation. That's where caregivers would be best served, just not taking on so much because that's where the resentment comes in. And it's 
yeah. to also be a little bit selfish and say, okay, I have a boundary of like, I'm doing what I can because you start to lose sight of it, right? And you don't think about it rationally. That's where I think the therapist comes in to kind of tease that out of like, okay. Yeah. Sometimes we can set such high expectations for ourselves and also want to try and control the situation as much as we can by doing that. Yeah, exactly what you're saying. Part of that too, and I don't really need this in my situation, thank goodness, but many of our clients, they are taking care of their spouse and they need nearly 24-hour care. So how do you find the right people that can come in and fill in that gap, even just respite care so that you can have some time to have your life? So there are resources. First of all, I think people need to come into it and understand that it's going to be Mr. or Mrs. right now, not necessarily Mr. or Mrs. right. The caregiver you have today is not the caregiver you're going to have even in a year. Sometimes people are lucky and they do, but that's the exception rather than the rule. Obviously, there are rules about hiring people, right? Department of Labor, hiring them on the books, paying workers' compensation, And then there's the reality of the situation that you have an entire community of people who are working off the books or aren't here illegally, but they are the ones who are the good caregivers. So it is a Hobson's choice. I'm not going to lie about it. I'm not advocating breaking the law, just to be clear, but there are communities you can tap into that will find someone. So I happen to know people in the space just doing the work that I do in guardianships and contested guardianships. And there are people who act as personal needs guardians who just have these resources and contacts, right? I know geriatric care managers, they usually know who are the aides, who are the good aides, you know, who's available and who can shift and who's ready to work. So that's usually my first call. Sometimes in the communities, right? So I was just court-appointed counsel for somebody who is in the Russian community, found an amazing Russian woman who speaks to her in Russian all day and just makes her life full and makes her able to stay at home. And so some of it is asking around word of mouth, people who you wouldn't think who might not talk about it all the time if you just say, I'm looking for a caregiver. They look to care.com. That's okay. But like anything else, you're going to have a full-time job interviewing, vetting. So the other answer is an agency, right? Because an agency takes all of that off of your plate in terms of Department of Labor and payroll. And you know you don't have to yeah all that yeah. To me, if somebody's asking me for guidance, it depends on how much money are we talking about that they have. Do they have long-term care insurance, which I'll come back to. A lot of people say, you know, I made a mistake. I didn't have long-term care insurance. I don't think that's the case because just the way that market is now, as I'm sure you know, is not really going to be the make or break of it, whether they should be going on Medicaid or you know, even if they have a lot of money, going on Medicaid, which you can be eligible for, may help supplement because- Mm-hmm. You get a $5 million and you're going to run through that really quickly on 24-7 care and not have a lot for the spouse. And now the spouse is going to be stressed. So that's not ideal. It depends on how much they want to spend. I mean, the reality is that 35 an hour is a pretty decent amount to pay for a good caregiver. You know, anything less than that, you can't have white glove expectations for somebody who's going to be making 18 an hour. But you also have to think through what is it that the person needs at that point in time? Because the spouse- mm-hmm. I mean, will change. Well, yeah. they're not going to want somebody in their house, right? It's like having a having a nanny. It's who are you comfortable with in your house taking care of a spouse? Do you just need somebody to make sure that they're not turning on and off the stove? To me, the worst is Alzheimer's or dementia, but they're ambulatory because they can unlock the door and just be gone. Is it somebody just make sure they're not wandering off? Or is it somebody that's got to get up with them six to nine times a night? Mm-hmm. Different skills. And so that's why- 
It's like any employee, right? Your needs are going to change. The person's going to change. How about navigating the hospital system, which I just feel like is so intimidating to make sure that you're getting the best care and that what you're being recommended for treatment options is really the right treatment option for them? The first thing is you have to ask questions especially for women within the medical community. And that's well documented and written about, right? We don't ask questions. We don't challenge authority. And some doctors are wonderful. I'm not trashing the medical profession at all. Some really don't have good bedside manners. It's not different. Mm-hmm. Like they're just, mm-hmm. I understand that the pressures of the healthcare system in our country are such that they don't have the time. And so you really need to make them pause and say, I need you to answer this question. Now, unfortunately, and this is just a sad state of affairs, the more money you have, the more time they're going to have to listen to you. So if you have a concierge doctor, which is where the medical profession is going, that can be a very good resource for people who can afford it. And it is worth it in these situations. So if you have a, a couple with money and they haven't had a concierge doctor, they should probably look into it because that person is going to help translate and coordinate and do all of those things that they can do. Allison, can you talk about what a concierge doctor is? Because I know not everybody is familiar I am because I see it more frequently here in New York City. I think that it's more common, but for a lot of people, this is like concierge what? What is this? Concierge is where you pay somebody, a doctor's office, a certain fee per year for them Mm -hmm. to be available to you whenever and however, right? It's not just your 15 minutes on the checkup that gets paid, I don't know, they could pay like $75, $100 by insurance, even though for their time, like any other professional would be a lot more. And so this allows them to give, at least in the philosophy of the model, allows them to give good patient care. I think if you ask a lot of doctors and primary care physicians, they would say that the health insurance system and system of payment does not allow them to give comprehensive patient care. Now, I'm sure a lot of people would react to that and say, well, it's not about the money, but it's still a business. They still have to turn their lights on. They still have to pay yeah. to deal yeah. with records to submit things. So that could range from $6,000 a year to more. I don't really know. But I just know from my own personal experience, getting a primary care physician has been impossible because every time I found one, they were they're booked. Concierge. They're booked and they're moving to concierge. And I'm not, thank God, knock on wood, I'm not somebody who really needs that at this moment in time. But for other people who whether it's a diabetes complication or something that's more chronic or MS. Those are things where it's worthwhile because they're giving you the higher level of service that you need to navigate. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about when your spouse is admitted to the hospital and it's part of that end-of-life care. Can you talk a little bit about the different options between hospice staying at home and having care versus being in the hospital. How do you navigate those decisions? It's a very, very broad question that depends on the circumstances. So I'll try to give a couple of examples. The place I'm going to start from is when you're talking end of life, it may very well be and usually is the person can't breathe without intubation. They're not eating because they have a swallow reflex problem. So are we going to withhold hydration nutrition? So like in the living will, when it lists all of these things, they're very easy to sign off on. But the reality of starving to death or dehydrating to death is not so appealing either. But if somebody's not able to swallow, are they going to put them on a feed bag? That's just not something that most people want to do. So those are just a couple of examples. Antibiotics to keep out of the sepsis infection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If somebody calls 911, they're going to resuscitate them. 
period, full stop. And you don't really have a choice of what hospital they're going to take them to. So even the most prepared people, if the person starts dying at home, they panic and they call 911. And so that's what's going to happen. And now you wind up in the hospital. To jump ahead a little bit, hospice can be a couple of different forms, but you could have hospice in a hospice facility, in which case you have to find space for that. You can also have hospice care at home. You know, in some circumstances or more, it's a long path, right? You could be in hospice for six months and then they bring, I think it's six months, and then they renew the prescription for the hospice. Now, hospice means somebody's coming and they're administering morphine and pain uh-huh, medication uh-huh. and they're trying to keep you comfortable. But let's take the, they're in the hospital and they're intubated. They're on a respirator. And how do you navigate that? Again, I think it is being an advocate, talking to the doctors, pinning them down, asking the questions that you need to ask. Hopefully, if you have somebody who's in the medical profession in your family or that you know, they can help you speak the right language and know what questions to ask to evaluate the situation. And I think the best thing to do is to remain calm, not take the anxiety out on the doctors and just try to evaluate, okay, what is the likelihood that this person is going to come out of this situation, return to a quality of life, whatever that means and it's subjective. Do we wait or do we not wait? And that's a heavy burden to wear, right? But you could wait a week and the person could come out of intubation and go back to where they were before. Are they going to go back to the way where you want them to be? No, not like mm-hmm. So I think yeah. that's how to navigate it. But even the people who have discussed it, really discussed the whole thing, it gets thrown out the window when you're in that situation. And all you can do is just get the facts, get the information, try to look at it as dispassionately as you possibly can, take a pause, talk to your support system, right? I think the hardest part is when people don't have a support system or yeah. Yeah. Really, you know, I know you deal with this a lot, women who wholly relied on the spouse for bill paying for all of those things. And now it's a crash course in having to be self-sufficient and make decisions. Hopefully people have children who are going to help navigate it, right? When you have an older couple, yeah, yeah, kids can be instrumental in that. Yeah. Hopefully that they're not adding to the stress of the situation. Before we jumped on the air, we were talking a little bit about what's called a bioethics committee in the hospital. What is their role and can they help translate to you of the doctors speak? Yeah, I named the bioethics committee. I don't know that that's only from my own experience being a temporary guardian with that particular hospital. And again, I'm not a healthcare professional, so this is all anecdotal. I don't want somebody to come out and say, you have no idea what you're talking about with the bioethics committees. But my understanding is that most hospitals have at least some committee person department who is there as a source of support both to the physicians and the family in terms of that decision making and to make sure obviously is there a living will but i should say this at this point even in the absence of a living will even if the person hasn't executed a living will you can still make end of life decisions so mm-hmm. in a hospital setting they have other forms there's a most form which is, I'm going to get the acronym wrong, but it's medical options for life-sustaining treatment. There's a post form. There's other things that the people can execute when in the institutional setting or even out of it. There's a DNR, which is obviously the do not resuscitate while you're in the hospital, or you could even have a non-hospital DNR. So it's not the end of the world if you don't have that living will. But the bioethics committee, let's call it, is going to evaluate all of those things and talk to the family members so that you're not dealing with that on the line battlefield decision, but that they're trying to tease out what is the thinking on this? Where is the family at? They're trying to 
bring a level of calm so that there isn't a dispute so people aren't going to get into a protracted dispute or even litigation. In my experience, people in a time of stress, it's easier to tap into anger and direct that somewhere else. And that's just a bad recipe for everybody, definitely for the person who's sick. I suspect that on the other side of it, if a physician is saying this person really should not be throwing all of these measures at this person because they're not coming back. And I think a lot of physicians would probably share with you the idea that we keep people alive too long, or there's the accusations against hospitals that they're just keeping people alive to make money from insurance. And I think the hospitals want to focus on patient care. That's their business. Yeah. That's yeah. what they do. And so I think it's just a way to address the realities of the situation. Yeah. Allison, I can't thank you enough. This has been such a enlightening conversation. And I personally feel like I've learned so much more just even knowing how to prepare. And thank God I don't have this situation in my life, but you never know. I know that with my mother, she was on end of care and there were a lot of things that we lived through that all those things that you talk about, the anger, the frustration. I mean, I remember my dad and I got in a fight and it's because we were both just so frustrated and sad and we're all fine now. You know, and I said sorry and he said sorry and I'm flying to go see him next week to just spend a little extra time with him, which is great. But it's hard having someone like you to help is just like, oh, what a gift. Listen, I, I feel for my clients. It's not, I think I said this to you before, there's, you know, as just as a human being that I'm there to counsel them. But I'll leave you on a light note. You said something about your dog. So we have a 17-year-old puggle and she has cancer as dogs tend to do. So last Thanksgiving, there's an injection for it. She got the injection and then it came back and I didn't get into the vet fast enough. So she had surgery and then another injection. And so my husband and I are now in this discussion about end of life of the dog. What's the right thing to do? And it's very different with an animal because they obviously don't know from death and that's a nice blessing. But I will share with you, we have a little bit of a disagreement about these, like no more surgeries. It's just not right to her. And she was in pain and we're both convinced that she's a bionic dog. She's going for broke. For I have to say 17 is pretty amazing, even for a puggle. And I know that they're smaller dogs, but wow. Yep. And oh she, my gosh. they'll get into the garbage and we're like, you have cancer. Maybe you should act like you have cancer. And she does not. So anyway, to just end on a note of levity that in my situation, it's my spouse and I who are navigating my dog's golden years and what we're going to do if the cancer comes back. Yeah. Well, you know what? So many of these skills, they just translate so many parts of our life. Allison, how do our listeners get a hold of you? What is the best way for them to reach out to you? So they can find me on the website of my firm, which is Gets Fitzpatrick. They can Google my name, Allison Besunder. It should come up. I am also on LinkedIn and I'm on Twitter as a state trust plan and on Facebook. I think it's Allison Arnabesunder. But we will make sure for all of you listening that Allison's contact information and links to LinkedIn and Twitter and all of those different places are there for you as well. And Allison, I can't thank you enough. Thank you for joining us on Financially Ever After. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Allison was able to be so helpful in really documenting and outlining all of the different issues, many of the issues, quite frankly, I hadn't really even thought about when it comes to end-of-life care. 
I know in talking to many of our clients, one of the biggest stressors is financial. Medical care is very expensive. And the number one reason for bankruptcy here in the United States is because of medical expenses. If you're concerned about high medical bills and whether or not you are still on financial track, please reach out to us. We can guide you. We can counsel you. We can give you resources on the matters that matter the most. We're here for you. And you can reach out to us at www.francisfinancial.com or you can reach out directly to me at Stacy S-T-A-C-Y, at francisfinancial.com. Thank you for joining us for Financially Ever After Widowhood. Thank you for tuning in to Financially Ever After Widowhood. If there's a question you'd love for us to answer on the podcast, we can do that for you. All you have to do is give us a call and the number is 347-682-5580. Let me say that again, 347-682-5580. Whether you're working with an advisor or you're maybe doing it on your own, we invite you to reach out to us at www.francisfinancial.com or you can email me at Stacy S-T-A-C-Y, at francisfinancial.com. Our hope is to be a resource for you to help you also find a great financial advisor, whether that be with our firm or one of our trusted colleagues. Please be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast and join us next time on Financially Ever After Widowhood.